and welcome to the podcast, That's What She Said, a podcast by women in politics, about women in politics. I'm your host, Anna Greenberg. I'm a woman in politics. I'm a managing partner at Greenberg Women Rosner, a Democratic polling firm. I work with Democratic candidates running for office and progressive advocacy groups. I started this podcast last year because I wanted to highlight the amazing work that women do in politics, especially behind the scenes, the stuff that you don't see in the papers. So you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at She Said Paul Pod. And please leave us a review on iTunes so we can get the word out about the podcast. Today, we have a great conversation with Susan Glazer. Susan is incredibly accomplished as a journalist and an editor. She was the managing editor at Roll Call, the national editor at the Washington Post, the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine, and the editor of Politico. She's currently the chief international columnist for Politico, and she's got a great podcast called The Global Politico. You're really going to want to listen to it, especially after you listen to her today. So let's get started. Um, Susan, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me on my podcast about women in politics. Um, I want to start with Russia. And, you know, we don't usually talk about current events on this podcast because it's meant to have sort of a longer shelf life, right, than current events. But you were the head of the Russia Bureau for the Washington Post, along with your husband, Peter Baker, in the 2000s, the early 2000s. Um, and obviously, um, you've been a foreign policy correspondent, and you've done a lot of writing and talking about Russia. And I just want to ask you a little bit about what is it like to cover this story and talk about this story, having sort of been there when Putin sort of first rose to power? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Anna, for having me. I, I This is such a, a great idea for a podcast, and uh, having my own podcast, The, the Global Politico, I uh, am a convert to the <laughs> genre. Uh, I'm glad you asked about Russia, and it has been over the last year, I would say, this amazing and obviously unexpected convergence of these two very different storylines in my life, right? You know, so Peter and I, as you said, were based in Moscow basically for the first term of Vladimir Putin as he was coming to power and consolidating his authority in the Kremlin. So from the end of 2000 to the end of 2004. And here we are all these years later. And uh, by the way, when we came back from Russia, we wrote our book, Kremlin Rising, and that came out in uh, the spring, late spring of 2005. We couldn't get anybody in Washington <laughs> to pay attention to Russia. It was like a joke, like, we'll, we'll go on any show that wants to talk about Russia. And, you know, the producers at the Washington Post were always like, oh, well, Susan, we're trying, but they don't, they don't care. And, you know, here we are now, and in one year into Trump's presidency, it's Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, and so it's this very unlikely uh, intersection of what up until now have been these sort of parallel and almost non-intersecting strands of my professional journalistic life. Um, I think that it was helpful to cover Putin's Russia in a variety of ways. Uh, number one, obviously, many of the cast of characters are the same, and so uh, while I haven't been, you know, beat reporter uh, covering the ins and outs of this uh, scandal uh, per se or the investigation, uh, I think having an understanding of how that political system works uh, is a very opaque system is obviously very useful in. Uh, understanding what might have happened 
uh, what might not, the fact that, uh, you know, what does it mean that Putin came out of this institution, the mm -hmm, KGB, right. and has brought that to power. So things like that are helpful. And then also knowing uh, the cast of characters here in Washington, uh, it's a relatively tight-knit community of kind of Russia hands mm -hmm. uh, inside the government and, and outside who followed it closely uh, for the last decade and a half. And, you know, I have to tell you, during campaign 2016, my friends who follow Russia, uh, including senior level people in the, the U.S. government, their lights were blinking bright red. And, you know, there was a clear sense that something was going on here uh, and that the, the political world was not taking seriously enough. And, I mean, it did, for many people, seem like a surprise. But um, so my firm does a lot of work internationally and a lot of work in Eastern Europe. So in the campaigns that we work on there, we're well aware of Russian interference, which changed over time as they started using the internet for propaganda and misinformation and other things. Um, but so it's not new in Europe, especially Eastern Europe, to see Russian meddling. So are you surprised that people were surprised here about it? <laughs> well, that's exactly. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's totally true that uh, this is the KGB playbook uh, and it's been used and refined with, uh, you know, increasing rapidity uh, over the last decade really uh, in how Russia has intervened first in what they call the near abroad, basically the countries of the former Soviet Union that they're still eager uh, to maintain influence over or in some cases to try to uh, control entirely, uh, whether it was the cyber attack on Estonia or uh, uh, obviously a lot of the interventions in Ukraine are a good example, uh, including, by the way, uh, literally uh, getting illegally taped uh, phone conversations right. of the U.S. Um, uh, Assistant right. Secretary for uh, Europe and then leaking those uh, mm -hmm. where uh, our, our right? friend, right. no, actually, oh. this is um, uh, Toria Newland who uh, will be on my podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, tomorrow, but she was at the time the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, and that's the key role overseeing our policy toward Russia and Europe. And she was in the middle of this um, Ukraine revolution in uh, 2014. She was taped uh, saying basically fuck the EU mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to basically you know trying to get a functioning government right. in, in Ukraine and that was uh, leaked obviously it was very embarrassing right. very divisive between the United States and right. its well, allies. Russia likes chaos. Well exactly mm -hmm. and that was a, a straightforward Russia play mm -hmm. uh, but people didn't really they pay attention here in Washington yeah. no they didn't yes. uh, and even in 2016 they didn't take it seriously mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. Were there People like you and others, either from the world of journalism, I mean, someone like Luke Harding, for example, The Guardian, I mm -hmm. think was all over the story, um, or even on the government side that were like, or even Congress trying to sound the alarm and it was ignored, or, I mean, I know there were certain things like McConnell telling Obama that we're not going to allow you to release this information publicly, you know, so there may, you know, do you sense that there were a lot of people raising alarm bells and not a lot of action? Yes, I do, absolutely. I think both inside the government, obviously we didn't know the extent of it. I wish we had reported more more aggressively about mm -hmm. it. Obviously, you recall uh, what, what, what a chaos uh, yes. the 2016 campaign mm -hmm. was. And, and so there are some reasons that are very justifiable so just to reasons, interrupt you for a sec, you were the editor at Politico during 2016. That's correct. I so was overseeing, overseeing all of our coverage. So thinking about how you guided coverage on Russia. Right. 
do you feel like maybe you should have done more or you guys were all over it or I mean you know I mean both things are true right, right. I think that we did cover uh, the news as we saw pretty aggressively and because of my interest in Russia actually uh, Politico did some of the earliest stories all the way back uh, in the campaign uh, the primary campaign in 2016 for example I assigned Michael Crowley our foreign affairs writer to do a piece for Politico magazine which I then personally edited uh, that was one of the first pieces that talked about uh, Michael Flynn mm -hmm. uh, going to uh, Moscow, sitting at the table with Vladimir Putin at the RT Gala, right. uh, that memorable picture which has now been used a million times. And you know, what was this world of um, you know how how RT became this uh, pro-Trump network was a piece that we ran very early on. So you know, that's one thing I always say to people is like. There's plenty of second guessing to do mm -hmm. of sure. the, the media and its coverage of any campaign and, and certainly the 2016 campaign. But can anyone really say that they didn't go to the ballot box uh, in November 2016 not knowing uh, what Donald Trump's flaws and liabilities as a candidate were, not knowing about his biography? He's one of the most extensively covered sure. uh, public figures of our time. There are four major biographies of Trump mm -hmm. and his his predilection and praise for Vladimir Putin was well known, well Absolutely. documented at yes. the time. His encouragement of uh, WikiLeaks and mm -hmm. you know touting the hacked emails, well known at the time. So you know, on the one hand, I would say in the big picture sense, it's important you know to say, well, was anybody really misled? Uh, same thing when it comes to his treatment of women, for example. Sure. So on the one hand, I would say there's a lot of information out there, and because of my background in Russia, I did push us to cover it pretty aggressively. That being said, uh, and I also had a sense from some of my uh, longtime contacts and, and sources within the U.S. government who deal with Russia, uh, that there was a high level of concern. As I said, they were blinking red, mm -hmm. therefore I was. And right. it, it did feel frustrating right. to try to get people to pay attention sure. to it. Yeah. Now, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. None of us knew that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to lose, including Donald Trump. Right, right. And that's actually a key point. Yeah. But um, just one final yeah. thing. We've learned a lot since then. Yes. Uh, and I wish that we had reported more aggressively on what was going on inside the Obama administration. The fight right. the at the White House about whether was or not much more significant. I knew there was friction, but it was much more significant than I knew. And I later came, uh, and I've reported in my mm -hmm. column at Politico, uh, I, I later came to understand that the people who dealt with Russia at the most senior levels mm -hmm. uh, in the State Department and in other positions uh, at the NSC were fighting very hard and losing mm -hmm. the battle uh, with Susan Rice and uh, other political types in the Obama White House over doing more to publicly confront the Russians. Mm -hmm. And I think many of them would say that was a mistake sure. in hindsight. Yeah, and as a Democratic consultant, I find that extremely disappointing. But, mm -hmm. um, but let's talk a little bit more about Russia. Um, when you um, moved to Moscow um, and you went with your husband, Peter Baker, who's now at the New York Times, was that your first kind of foreign posting? And what, how different was it to be a journalist um, not in the U.S., uh, in, especially you know, in Moscow between Yeltsin and Putin? How different, was your job different than it was here? Um, and was it different? I mean, I think that we all can agree that women face a fair amount of discrimination and sexism and even harassment 
in journalism in the U.S., but was it worse in Russia, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's a great, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I would say, first of all, it was an incredible experience and an invaluable and life-changing one. Uh, and as with, you know, people told us that on the front end, but as with anything, it's life-changing, but you don't know how. Right, of course. <laughs> in what ways will it, it, it change your life? It, Russia was something I'd always been interested in. I actually took Russian uh, uh, in high school my senior year I unfortunately did not keep it up it's a lot easier to learn a language especially a difficult one yes. <laughs> like Russian when you're 18 years old mm -hmm. than it is when you're almost 30 which is when I then came back to it in preparation uh, for moving to Moscow with the post but having or basically up until that point in time spent my career here in Washington and primarily doing politics and uh, campaign coverage when I was just out of college uh, uh, on Capitol Hill at Roll Call and then uh, at the Washington Post I was overseeing uh, basically the political scandals of the um, late Clinton era which mm -hmm. ended up being 14 long months of impeachment right. <laughs> <laughs> which is a whole different story but yeah. so to go from that to an overseas posting was a dramatic change in career and we're extraordinarily lucky that at that moment in time it was something that was possible uh, you know foreign correspondence has changed enormously right. since then people so shutting down bur bur absolutely and, yeah. so mm -hmm. Peter and I were really lucky in a way that we I, f I always said to people like it's like we jumped through the window just as it was slamming mm -hmm. uh, behind us. So we had, in a way, uh, a little bit of what it was like to really be a foreign correspondent in its glory days, which already somewhat passed of the 80s and stuff. The other thing that's changed enormously is the communications situation. We had the internet when we were in Russia. We did not have iPhones. Right. Uh, we didn't even have Blackberries until we came back from Moscow. Uh, so we had cell phones and we had the internet. But uh, and we did file stories for for the web, but we didn't have that 24-hour-a-day news cycle. And people in Russia were certainly aware that they could get our stories then because of the internet. But the level of accountability and transparency that exists now, when we're really a much more seamlessly interconnected world, didn't exist then. And so you know, in the old days of foreign correspondence, right? You know, your sources might never read. Your stories, right. so you had a lot more latitude to operate, and independence also from the editors back home. And so, so in other words, if you were to report something that a source shared with you, and it might not have reflected well on the source, it might not matter that much if it was only read in the U.S. Absolutely, but now the that sources can read this, oh, that's super interesting. Yeah, so audiences are now global, uh, and right. of course that means that your coverage, especially if you work for something like the Washington Post or the New York Times, uh, the consequences are much more significant inside the country for anything that you might report. Right. Now again, obviously already the Washington Post and the New York Times were taken very seriously in the Kremlin and they were mm -hmm. uh, observed, but it's just the communications environment has shifted pretty yeah. radically and we're right at that change point. The other thing that happened when we decided to become foreign correspondents, so both Peter and I were, had this pre-existing interest in Russia, which is fantastic in the sense that we got this opportunity to go there, but the other thing that happened is, of course, September 11th occurred mm -hmm. uh, when we were not even a full year in. So in addition to having this experience in Russia, uh, we basically had like three foreign tours in one. We also ended up in Afghanistan. I was in and out of Afghanistan for nine months after September 11th. Wow. And we also had the war in Iraq. And so it was almost like three very different mm -hmm. foreign tours all mm -hmm. in this eventful mm -hmm. four-year period. And 
we had spent almost a year preparing at least to live in Russia and studying the language and the, the history and getting to know people. We landed in Afghanistan, just like our sure. country, mm -hmm. completely ignorant. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I was really unprepared to be a war correspondent. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I'd never heard a gun fired mm -hmm. uh, in anger or otherwise. Yes. Did you and Peter do that together? Did you do it separately? Uh, we were mostly separately, mm -hmm. uh, which was very stressful. This I'll was, bet. by the way, the first year of our marriage. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, we were married in uh, almost exactly a year to the day before 9-11. Um, our first mm -hmm. wedding anniversary was mm -hmm. September 9th, 2001, oh which we spent in Belarus, right. uh, in Minsk, <laughs> uh, where we were uh, covering what at the time seemed like a big story, which was uh, the rigged uh, re-election of what at the time was called the last dictator in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, Alexander Lukashenko, who, by the way, is still the leader of That's Belarus <laughs> all this time later. And we celebrated our first anniversary in Minsk with um, brownies that I brought from Moscow and then traveled back to Moscow, and that's where we were on September 11th. Right. Uh, at any rate, so we were mostly going in and out of Afghanistan at the same times, but with different assignments. Mm -hmm. uh, and I ended up covering the Battle of Tora Bora uh, almost by accident in, in late November and December of 2001, mm -hmm. basically because I was the Washington Post correspondent who was there. And, you know, if, if the Battle of Tora Bora is happening, even if you don't feel prepared to cover it, you know, you're the Washington Post, you what are you gonna it. do? You gotta do right. it. I mean, so I it. think of like these tough women war correspondence and you know the and they're sort of they they love the action and throwing themselves in they don't mind the danger the romantic um you didn't feel that way no i felt <laughs> like what the heck i was there we didn't even have body armor uh i was there in my black leather boots and my messenger bag from moscow mm -hmm. uh i was totally miss uh unprepared for this this scenario in fact even being in afghanistan i was in islamabad uh pakistan at the time uh writing stories about what was going on in afghanistan uh, when they told me that i should go into jalalabad in afghanistan i went to the 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 uh, carpet dealer uh uh and um store that I knew at this point in Islamabad, and I'm like, help, I have to go to Jalalabad. Like, I, I need the right kind of scarves. And the man sells me this very beautiful, very expensive black pashmina, you know, to, to wrap around my, my head. head. Right. And, you know, and then I, I, I desperately, you know, uh, went to the store at the hotel and bought like a shawar kameez to, to wear. And so I show up at the Battle of Torabor and I'm wearing this very nice, um, you know, it's winter, you know, black uh, scarf over my head and this this black shawar kameez and sunglasses, very sunny and beautiful there. I later made friends with someone uh, in Kabul I saw like a month uh, later after this battle and he said, you know, oh yeah, you were very famous on the mountain at Torabora, not only because you were one of the only women and you were the Washington Post woman, but you're wearing this outfit. He said, you looked like a professor at Tehran University. <laughs> like, this is not what women in Afghanistan wear. Like, this is like a sort of a Shiite, like, intelligentsia outfit. <laughs> Which, of course, is a very female approach to remember what I wore um, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Afghanistan. But the truth was, obviously, Afghanistan is one of the worst places for women in the world. Yeah. Uh, there were over 90% illiteracy when I was there. Uh, and yet, paradoxically, 
it was a certain amount of advantage for me there as, mm -hmm. a, as a woman correspondent because a I was able to interact with women as well as uh, men mm -hmm. uh, whereas like my husband Peter was really met almost no women in the right. entire time he was there uh, and so it was an advantage for me also uh, I was such an outlier there was no real category for me uh, you know in Afghanistan at that time, very much a warlord culture that we were operating in. You know, basically, women were either, you know, sort of Western whores, more or less, or, uh, uh, you know, spies or something like that. So they didn't really know what to make of me. Mm -hmm. uh, they also thought I looked extraordinarily young. Uh, at the time, I was in my early 30s, uh, and I probably did look young. But even in, in the Afghan culture, the, these women were um, a woman our age, uh, the age that you and I are now, would be like a very which advanced is very, grandmother. Which is very young. Very young. Yeah. Would be like a very old grandmother. But right. even a woman in her early 30s uh, would be so aged by mm -hmm. the experience of having so many children right. and uh, uh, being outside that they looked like a completely different That's generation. So they thought it was like this, this high school kid or something. Right. <laughs> Do you think that they found you less threatening because they thought you were young, or did they did you were you dismissed and not paid attention to because you're young, or both, or something different? No, again, being such an outlier, the the thing about being dismissed and not paid attention to that might exist in a more westernized society, uh -huh. but in that circumstance, uh, what I found was that a being from the Washington Post, and b being the sort of paradox. Um, it, there was definitely extra attention. I, what I found is that basically there's no possibility of anonymity uh, operating in that culture. You can't just be doing your business as a reporter and kind of, uh, you know, hoping people don't pay attention. Uh, you're so visible. In fact, it's the exact opposite. That was true for many uh, Western men, too, mm -hmm. at that time. It was a very closed, you know, war zone uh, country. Uh, so we were outliers no matter what. But I once went to Mazar-e-Sharif in the north of Afghanistan, and I wasn't able to take my translator with me because um, I basically got a ride on a United Nations flight, and he had to come uh, uh, on the ground. So it took him like two extra days. He Mazar-e-Sharif is a city of one million people. Hmm. He showed up, and he w and there were no cell phones that worked. He, just he found me ask. within one hour. <laughs> he, he, say, he, went, he went to the governor's <laughs> office and he said, where's the woman from the Washington <laughs> Post? And they were like, oh, yeah, she was here an hour ago. And he literally found me within probably, you know, under oh, two hours. That's so interesting. Um, so uh, just changing, you know, course here. Um, I'm really interested in your work as an editor. So you were the national editor of the Washington Post. You were also the editor of Foreign Policy magazine. You were also the editor of Politico. And I think a lot of people understand, at least on some basic level, what it means to be a journalist. But I'm not sure everybody understands what editors do. Um, and I'm wondering, um, in all your work as an editor, have you preferred the kind of on-the-ground reporting or the more editorial role? Or is, are there ways to kind of go back and forth between those positions? Well, I think I'm really lucky in the sense that uh, uh, some people are really just reporters or just editors in their career, and that's what their strong preference is. And I've been lucky enough to really love doing both things. And in general, journalism, of course, is an amazing profession because it's it's lifelong learning. It's it's never the same. You always have the opportunity uh, to uh, expand uh, your horizons or to take it in different directions as the story goes or as your own interests change. And so. Uh, 
uh, it, it's just a wonderful job. Sometimes you can't believe, you know, that you're getting paid to, right. to do this. Uh, and I, for me, I would say sometimes I approach being an editor in the way that a reporter would, and sometimes approach being a reporter or a writer in the way that an editor would. So for, for me, it's been wonderful to have both experiences. Uh, it's also very helpful as an editor to be a writer and to know how hard it is mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> as a journalist to get people to talk to you, how long it takes, uh, what it's like. I've known some very, very wonderful editors who that's kind of a blind spot for them. So I've always gone back and forth ever since college, really, uh, where I loved being a writer on the school newspaper. I also loved being an editor. Uh, but you're right that primarily I probably spent the bulk of my career as an editor. And that's been particularly rewarding, but also challenging over the last decade with the transformation of journalism, the transformation of the technology, and the fundamental reorientation in what we read, how we read, the distribution of it. And so that, for some people, has been experienced as a, as a moment of great stress and anxiety, obviously. Change is disruptive. Uh, and, and you took it on head on because you were an editor of an online newspaper slash magazine. So, you know, you sort of went right into that space. Absolutely, and my mantra for much of this last decade really has been that, you know, uh, not everybody's a loser uh, mm -hmm. from this online transformation. A lot of the early conversation around it, especially as you know, at the Washington Post was very negative. It was all about what was gonna be lost and disrupting the, the power and tradition of the print newspaper. I always preferred to see it much more as what are the new opportunities and, you know, there will be winners as well as losers in this digital transformation, so let's figure out how to mm -hmm. be on, on the winning side of it. And it's interesting, 2016, we can come back to that, but it sort of challenged some of my assumptions in some significant ways. But basically, I've always been a, a, a techno-optimist and a f feeling that for anybody who cared about information, that uh, this would be a golden age of it. I look back at when you and I were starting our careers and you know, graduating from college in the late 1980s, early 1990s, look at the access to information and the power that we have uh, over it as a result compared with uh, then. You know, mm -hmm. that was a scarcity era of yes. information and we're now in a enormous era of being overwhelmed sure, actually with sure, information sure. and that is the other point I would make which is that editing has always been valuable and uh, necessary component of journalism I think it's become even more necessary and valuable in an age of too much we require editors to sift through it to help us to understand uh, the hierarchy to help to reestablish frameworks of thinking around all this overwhelming flow of information. This word curate has become mm -hmm. almost a, a cliche right. of the internet era, but whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's in yeah. editing is more needed than ever. So uh, you mentioned that you've always sort of come in and out of it. Um, and I think when you worked at Roll Call, eventually you were the editor there mm -hmm. as well. And yes. you're probably in your 20s when you did yes. that. Yes, yes, I was So young. what was it like to be the boss of men as a 20-something-year-old woman? <laughs> you know, it's really interesting in light of this national conversation that we're having now around the, the Me Too mo moment and everything. Uh, there's something about being in your early 20s. In a way, you're sort of clueless, and that's right. a good thing. <laughs> I was very lucky. When I graduated from college, I went to work at the place that I'd interned at in, in, in college, which was Roll Call Newspaper. At the time, it's still around today, but at the time, it really, as you know, it, it occupied... Uh, 
almost like what Politico is now. It, it had a very had acquired a very dominant role on Capitol Hill. It was the um, was the, the, the house right the gossip sheet the what's happening in Congress the kind of insider. It stuff. was like an invaluable community Absolutely. newspaper right. that was very aggressive about breaking news uh, at a time when there wasn't this whole rest of the internet conversation around it. So it had a very uh, you know, the community was uh, 535 members of Congress and the whole world of thousands of people that, that worked and served them. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I graduated from college in 1990 and I went right to work, you know, a week later mm-hmm. uh, as, <laughs> as a reporter there. I, I became an editor relatively quickly uh, and continued to work there. Basically, I spent the first almost eight years out of college working there in the 1990s. And um, you know, it was a very male world, but because it was like a small, young place to work, and I was supported by, you know, the the people who were there. Jim Glassman was the editor uh, when I graduated from college and, you know, was incredibly supportive. So I wasn't, I was a little clueless, honestly, mm-hmm. about how the big, bad world of work actually operated. Mm-hmm. But I mean... I have to imagine, maybe not at Roll Call, but maybe at the Post or Politico, do men and women reporters have different reactions to a woman editor, um, and also in contrast to a male editor? So I'm just going to like assume that men are more likely to push back than women. I don't know if that's true or not, um, but thinking in stereotype ways about how the differences between men and women. Um, and I wonder, and I guess I just assume men would push back more on a female editor than a male editor. But those assumptions could be completely wrong. I'm, you know, I mean, I know that, like, I look at how in the workplaces that I manage, and I manage one now, there's definitely the men and women who are all equally smart and talented deal with the workplaces very differently. And I, I've had more challenges in the past around supervising some more senior men, for example, than, than women. So I don't know if that's been your experience as well. But Well, it's very interesting. I mean, first of all, I should say... Uh, Yes, in a big picture sense. Uh, not only have I experienced a lot of sexism in the workplace, both you know as a as a journalist, uh, but in particular in the role of managing people, I I think that the persistence of both gender stereotyped and like radically different experiences for women versus men in the mer- workplace was something that I was naive about when I graduated from college. I really felt like there was just sort of a positive trajectory. I was kind of insulated and isolated from a lot of it because I had these very supportive older male figures at the time. Mm -hmm. Of course, they were probably younger than we are now. You know, they were like in their (laughs) 40s, but they were very supportive. Both Tim Mm -hmm. Glassman, Charlie Cook is Mm -hmm. really who I learned about politics from. Uh, He's a wonderful person. He was so supportive. He really taught me Mm -hmm. about politics. Uh, Mort Kondracki, I was his editor, uh, as well as Charlie's. You know, he he taught me a lot about Washington and how it works. Uh, They couldn't have been more supportive of me. So I had these male, older male mentors, and then this sort of young workplace. The other reporters were like me, a mix of men and women. Uh, And so I didn't really experience it until I went to work at the Washington Post. eight years later and I came in as a pretty senior editor on the national desk in charge of investigations one week before the Bill Clinton Monica Lewinsky story (laughs) broke Uh, and that was a shock to the system to be working in this large very sexist workplace Mm -hmm. and I was very surprised uh, by it in many ways because I had come out of this much smaller more nurturing environment where I wasn't 
conscious. I'm sure that there were unconscious gender issues in that workplace, but uh, you know, it didn't day to day affect me in any significant way. Uh, and then to come into this big industrialized workplace with hundreds of people and very ingrained uh, gender issues. And, and in particular, as a young woman, I was in my late 20s uh, at the time that I was a, an editor on the national desk at the Washington Post. I realized that the available career paths that I perceived for women were really kind of unacceptable to me. Basically, uh, this was already in 1998, and yet I felt like either there was this sort of stereotype of the kind of ball-busting, you know, hard-as-nails, uh, tough woman, uh, uh, maybe they were married and had kids, maybe they weren't, uh, or there was this sort of office gossip, you know, hysteric, uh, cliche caricature of, you know, femininity that definitely wasn't something I was interested mm -hmm. in, uh, or there was the mommy track. And, you know, at the age of 29, you don't want that. And no. frankly, you don't want that at the age of 49. <laughs> no, you um, don't. <laughs> and so I immediately perceived that this was, this was a whole different world. Uh, and uh, my experience from that point forward at the Washington Post was extremely gendered. Well, this is one of the reasons why I think women become more feminist as they get older, because <laughs> because you tend to start experiencing those kinds of workplace, whether it's explicit discrimination or implicit, um, or the way gender role expectations shapes how people see you. It tends to happen a little bit later in life, right? I, I think you know, and I think you become more aware of it, and you become more aware of the way it affects you, um, affects your career path. I certainly did not feel in my twenties. Um, didn't really understand uh, what was going on around me in terms of gender dynamics. I was a graduate student for most of the uh, uh, most of my 20s. I was getting my PhD at the University of Chicago. But in retrospect, I look at the person who was my dissertation chairman, and he was pretty awful to me. Um, clearly preferred working with men graduate students. Um, you know, he didn't read my dissertation. He didn't. He wrote me a short, uh, which is the kiss of death in academia. As he wrote me a short reference, a recommendation and which was shared to me, which shouldn't have been because it's confidential by another person on the faculty. Um, and because I, um, and I, you know, obviously <laughs> um, didn't like him, but didn't really think as much about what the consequence for me as a woman in this right. career was going to be of having this person as my chair. And it's only as an older person now that I realize how fucked up that was. Now, I got kind of lucky because I, my first job was teaching at Harvard at the Kennedy School, and I got that job through no help from him. I got, I had another faculty member who sort of championed me, was a mentor, um, who is still a friend to this day, who sort of put my who name in. Who was a man. Who was a man. Yeah. No, um, I, I also benefited right. from men Absolutely. throughout my early career, Absolutely. but without being aware yeah. in this way. You're so talking. I was just completely unaware, and it is now, as an older person, I look back on my experience in graduate school and think, I cannot believe, I mean, why did I tolerate that? You know, and, and I would say in academia, especially when you're dealing with tenured professors, if you're a graduate student, there is no good that's going to come of you trying to agitate around how you've been treated by faculty. But I'm not even sure I was aware enough to even have known. It's like, you know, the kid on Passover who doesn't know enough to know what kind of question to ask. Like, I'm not even sure <laughs> I knew enough about what was happening to me to even know what I would, would do about it. But, when, but then when you get older, and you know, I got to the Kennedy School, and you know, that entire, the entire power structure of Kennedy School is around older 
men who are either in foreign policy or economics, and almost no woman kind of gets through the tenure process, then you start kind of seeing it more clearly. So I tend to think about sort of millennial women and thinking, boy, they have no idea what's coming for yeah. them. <laughs> you know, I think I'm so glad you brought that up because that really is a powerful echo of my own experience. And I think for me, it really was that shock of going, you know, in college, I was a, I was a big feminist, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always very well aware of that. I wrote about uh, on the Harvard Crimson. I covered, uh, you know, gender discrimination on the Harvard faculty. At the time I was there, that women compre- comprised 7% of the tenured faculty. Mm-hmm. I did a big uh, very, for me, formative article on that. So, you know, I was very aware of that. Uh, I was only, uh, I was one of the first women to be the managing editor of, of the Harvard Crimson, uh, you know, in her own right, like not paired with a guy. Uh, so, you know, it was something I, I took seriously. But again, I sort of had this eight years where um, the start of my professional career uh, I felt intimidated as a young person on Capitol Hill, as a reporter. So, like, often I would, when I was just out of college, sometimes I would call and want to interview members of Congress on the phone rather than see them in person because mm-hmm. I felt uh, that they would, you know, judge me as, as just being too young. Right. I didn't see it as a gender thing. Uh, and there's certainly, you know, there's a lot more sex uh, in a professional context when you're in your early 20s, as we're now discovering uh, in the, this Me Too conversation. Maybe I wasn't aware enough of, of that. Uh, I had encounters that in hindsight were inappropriate at, at, at best, uh, uh, but uh, luckily, you know, didn't experience any kind of discrimination or, or harassment in any way. Uh, but then it was a shock, right. real shock, mm-hmm. to come at the age of 29 to the Washington Post to realize, and I was conscious of it. This is, it's not like I didn't realize how inappropriate it was. I saw this enormous gender stereotyping. I was very uncomfortable with it. I realized it was a problem, but I didn't know what, if anything, I could do about it. And then, you know, basically I had this incredible, crazy experience of 14 months of overseeing, you know, the post coverage of uh, this presidential impeachment and trial, mm-hmm. uh, which was an incredible journalistic opportunity. I was very lucky because my direct boss was a woman, uh, uh, Karen DeYoung, who at the time was the uh, assistant managing editor for National News. And that was one of the ways in which I realized that there was this incredible gender stereotyping. People, you know, Karen is a great journalist, and people definitely stereotyped her. And I was always like, what? You know, Mm -hmm. like, what? She was perceived to be so tough and so difficult. And I was like, really? I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. she was incredibly rigorous, as she is to this day, you know, and she's, uh, and I I saw right away that people had different views of her uh, that were, in my view, uh, then and now, definitely part of this gender Mm -hmm. stereotyping that that occurred at the whole place. But then we went away, and we were foreign correspondents, and it was really when I came back that another shock occurred. So Peter and I came back to Washington from Moscow uh, in late 2004, beginning of 2005, I was pregnant uh, with with our son, Theo. And uh, first of all, nobody should have to go back to work for three weeks, nine months pregnant (laughs) after having been gone for four years. Uh, (laughs) I didn't want to do that, and yet Mm -hmm. I did do that, and I was very uncomfortable And they wanted you to do it. They insisted. They They insisted insisted you go back to work. Uh, When you were nine months pregnant. Yes. I came back to work at the Washington Post newsroom uh, after being away for four years, nine months pregnant. Uh, and, uh, you know, big as a truck, very, you know, uncomfortable with that, very self-conscious, but whatever. Um, uh, 
it was really when I came back from maternity leave with Theo that I realized uh, uh, a number of very uncomfortable truths about gender uh, at the Washington Post and, and I think in other big workplaces because um, every single person, it seemed to me, when in the newsroom, you know, aside from people who were my close friends, they would come up to me and they would say, so, uh, you had this baby, are you going to be working part-time now? And every single time it made me furious, this question, mm -hmm. and yet I felt tongue-tied and I didn't know sure. the right answer until after right. the fact. You know, so I would sort of like mumble something like, well, you know, you gotta earn a living. Right. Uh, so, you know, I'm gonna, gonna, <laughs> gotta keep the gotta kid eat. fed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm gonna work full-time, but the implication of that question, right, is so horrible. It's like either A, the answer is, uh, no, so you're going to work full-time, which means you're a bad mother, mm -hmm. uh, or B, yes, which means your career is tanked and you're not right. going to be a serious factor right. Right. in this newsroom right. anymore. And so I just, I was made to feel, you know, kind of horrible from day one uh, of returning. And then the other thing that I realized as I looked around and I realized, where the hell are all the similarly situated women? Although it's probably true that there weren't so many when mm -hmm. I was 29 and, and a young editor at the Post. They didn't put a lot of women in those editing jobs then or now. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wasn't as conscious of it. And so I felt like there were lots of women sure. my age around, my peers. And there probably uh, were. And, and there were, were no more. And there. there were more. And they weren't there when I came back mm -hmm. and I was 35 mm -hmm. uh, years old. And suddenly there wasn't anybody else like yeah. me around yeah. anymore and they were all men yeah I mean I was thinking about you know you in this interview and thinking about myself and <clears throat> thinking about people who are sort of at the top of their game at our age our ripe old age and I, I wonder how many of us had our kids late um, I had my first child at 39 and my second at 41 and I was extraordinarily lucky that worked out for me um, <laughs> and I didn't necessarily wait on purpose you were but I got my PhD and I taught at Harvard and I was here at this firm for five years before I actually had a kid um, and I realized I would not be where I am now if I'd had my kids earlier. And I know that I've always been ambitious uh, and um, for myself, uh, you know, about what I wanted to accomplish and what I wanted to do. And I think I would have been unhappy if I had a kid earlier and it derailed my professional life. And I own that. But I think about people coming up and wanting to be in the kinds of positions that you are in. And it seems impossible to tell somebody, just wait till you're 39 when, you know, First of all, it's harder to have kids older. It's harder to get pregnant. It's harder to take care of them, <laughs> you know. And one of my son's uh, classmates asked me if I was his grandmother <laughs> recently. Oh, um, but, uh, you know, so it's like you can't, I don't think you could advise anybody. Oh, don't have a baby till you're 40. But like I'm telling you, I really, really believe that even today with all the progress we've made, if you have a kid in your 20s or even your early 30s, it can have a, you can take a substantial hit on your career no matter how smart and accomplished you are. Well, you know, and I feel like I experienced that actually ironically in both ways um, because so I came back and I was 35 uh, and I turned 36 while I was still in the hospital with Theo. And uh, I was very, very lucky to have him. I had had various, I had had an ectopic pregnancy mm -hmm. when I was in Moscow, which I didn't even know what that was, and right. I almost died. Oh <laughs> I was God. evacuated to London. Mm. And so, at any rate, but I was very lucky to have Theo, uh, you know, basically exactly a year later. Uh, and um, yet, what I experienced, so then I 
was promoted to various editing jobs at the Post uh, while Thea was still very young. I was the editor of the Outlook section, which was a great job. I loved doing that job, uh, mm-hmm. which is the Sunday <laughs> yep. kind of opinion and idea section. And then after that, I became the, the national editor. And uh, on the one hand, I was perceived as, you know, being this sort of, you know, aggressive young woman. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, some of the really older male executives, I didn't really find this out till later, but were very unsupportive of the idea uh, that it was somehow inappropriate. I was I was literally told that by one of the the top because you had a child. Post, absolutely, like you know, well, this isn't the right kind of job for someone. You know, well, you should be with your family at this age. And you know, I will say I also experienced um, not one but two miscarriages while I was um, uh, an editor, uh, a young editor, first at the Outlook section, and then when I was the the national editor uh, and uh, found the handling of that uh, to be, in a word, terrible. Mm. Uh, And uh, again, something I was totally unprepared for, I would say, Uh, you know, our reality of progress uh, and how people will deal with things in the workplace really wasn't matched by what I encountered in person. It was shocking uh, uh, in many ways. And that's why you need women in leadership. Well, you do, and I really (laughs) just didn't, none of this was, it was all new to me. I I mean, we're, my firm now, um, half of our partners are female, and all all three of us, because I'm an old mom, <laughs> the other are younger moms. We all have kids, yeah, and we all work full time. That's right. And I think and, that's so. And invaluable. our CEO is a woman with a young kid, and so you can walk out of the office at, like I did the other day at 4:30 because I take the metro to get my kids to school. Now, granted, I'm the boss, so no one's going to say anything right, but anyway. But you can also work but, at home and right, be more right, right. flexible, But, I mean, too. there's there's no judgment, you know, about anybody, like, leaving the office to go do deal with their kid. Or, you know, in fact, there's days where there's multiple kids in this office because, like, there's a snow day and we don't know what to do with them, so you bring them in. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, you know, and, I want, and that's how I want this workplace mm-hmm. to be. And, and, by the way, there's men with young children, too, and they have the same flexibility. So, um, but it's very difficult at big institutions. Yeah. like the I think it's Post much and, better yeah. now than it yeah. was then. Uh, I don't know if it's better there or not but you know in many ways I think that you know I've always been you know willing to jump into big professional challenges whether it was covering the battle of Tora Bora and being totally unprepared to do so <laughs> in ways that thank goodness I maybe I was not aware of I think the same is probably true of taking on a big management role at this you know a big institution like that and not I really didn't understand how deeply rooted this bias was and how much it was a shock uh, to their system to have, you know, a young woman with with, with a toddler, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, running this thing. And so, you know, that experience was, in the end, quite traumatic and and sort of didn't end very well for me. But in many ways, uh, you know, it it was an important one. And... You know, it certainly shaped me, I hope, for the better uh, in other editing and management and leadership roles I've had ever since then. Uh, You know, I think and hope that uh, the workplace of today is better than Mm -hmm. the one of even, you know, 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, on that optimistic note, thank you so much for participating in this podcast. It was a fascinating conversation, and I encourage everybody to listen to your podcast, which is called... The Global Politico. I assume you can get it everywhere. SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, all those places. Anywhere you like it, and every Monday on Politico, Mm -hmm. uh, you can see Mm -hmm. we have a new interview. I highly recommend it. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. Oh, thank you, Anna. This is a great conversation. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to That's What She Said, a podcast by women in politics about women in politics. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at She Said Paul Pod. Please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. I'm Anna Greenberg, your host, and I'll talk to you next time.